On the show today, I'm joined by two incredible stars. First up, from Buffy, Angel and Dexter, it's Julie Benz. And then I chat with improvising legend Brad Sherwood, who you've seen on Who's Liners anyway, and Drew Carey Show. It's going to be a fantastic show, so don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and I couldn't be more excited to be bringing you two fantastic interviews today. Now, first up, we've got Julie Benz, who is the star. She played Dala in Buffy and then reprised that role in the spin-off show Angel. And then she also played the wife of the main character in Dexter. Uh, she's got a wealth of uh, shows to talk about, including an upcoming one, uh, which she is making for YouTube Premium. We have a great chat with her. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Julie Benz. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Ah, uh, thank you. Now, Julie, what inspired you to become an actor? Oh, well, I think I just was a very imaginative child. Um, I was an ice skater growing up. I spent a lot of time by myself on the ice. Um, and I remember just always creating stories in my head to kind of, you know, pass the time away. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I was the type of kid that, um, you know, I love to perform. That's why, you know, I was obviously grew, grew up performing as an ice skater. But, um, you know, I was the type of child where every week you would ask me what I wanted to be when I, I would grow up. And I'd be like, I want to be a doctor. Oh, I want to be a teacher. I want to go to the moon. I want to be the president. I want to be a baby nurse. I want to do this. I want to do that. Like I, all, I wanted to do everything. And you know, the great thing about being an actor is you can play all those roles, and you don't have to, you know, go sort of get all the education. <laughs> and uh, once you worked out that acting is what you wanted to do, how did you go about realizing your goal professionally? Um, you know, I was very lucky. Um, I, I was very lucky in that um, I had parents that when I said I wanted to be an actor, my mom was like, okay, let's try it out. And so I started taking acting classes at 13, and uh, I met um, a manager at that time who really believed in me, and I started flying to New York with my mom for auditions, and I was doing a lot of um commercials and local theater in Pittsburgh where I grew up. And and then I went to college. I went to NYU and I studied there. Um, and I got my first TV series when I was 18 years old, freshman in college. And, and I continued to go to school and work. And then I stopped working just to focus on school and get that out of the way. And, you know, it just, I was just, I was lucky that I, you know, I had family that believed in me, but that I also believed in myself. That I, I remember being in college and um, other actors had all these backup plans, and everyone was like, "What's your backup plan?" And I was like, "It's sink or swim. <laughs> There's no backup plan. It's this or nothing." <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm pretty scrappy. I'm going to swim. <laughs> and and do you think it's important for young actors to have some kind of formal training education? Yes and no. Um, there are plenty of very talented, award-winning actors who don't have any formal training. Um, and those, there, are, there are people that just, they're born with talent, and they just 
you would watch them read the phone book and it would be the most interesting reading of the phone book ever. <laughs> I am not one of those people. I needed to study and learn and, and train. I think there's, um, I think education is important. Um, learning about literature is important. Learning how to read a script is important. Uh, I think understanding, you know, psychology is important. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to study acting to be an actor. Um, there are so many other other things to study if you if you want to be an actor. Um, uh, you know, be, loving to read is very important. Uh, I read so many scripts. Um, I'm a very I'm an avid reader. I, I could spend my whole day reading, and I would be perfectly happy. Um, and I've always been that way. In uh, reading is such a huge part of what we do. Um, so, but I don't necessarily think. I think training is good. I think it it works for some people, and then for other people, it doesn't work. So, it's very individual. Of course, and and leading on from that, what's your favorite book? My favorite book. Oh my, that's really hard. Um, <laughs> because I love so many. Um, uh, I love Shantaram. I love that book a lot. Um, what else? Um, you know, growing up, you know, I was a moody teenager. Anything written by Sylvia Plath was, you know, my favorite. Um, uh, what else? I don't know. I I read so much. Oh, there's that book, Born to Run. Have you ever read that one? I haven't. No. About the the people that do the hundred. Oh, it's about the, it's about people that do the hundred mile marathon. Um, that was fascinating. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but I read so much; it's hard for me to keep track. Fair enough. And and when you get given a script, what's your process? How do you go about creating a character? Oh, uh, it's it, it it's different for. I I don't have like one set approach. I read the script, and then I start working on the material. And then I start, you know, seeing the movie play in my head <laughs> um, and going like, oh, oh, I see that. Okay, so, you know, if, I w- if we were on set, I'd wanna, I would imagine it would be shot like this and this would be the feeling of it. And, um, and then for me, it's important that the shoes are right for the character. Shoes are, footwear is a big deal for me. Um because I feel like once you get, figure out how the character stands and everything else kind of comes from that, but also, and then there's the emotional life and, and the hardest part as an actor is to not pass judgment on a character. So you have to, an example is when I played Darla on Buffy and Angel, people used to always say, Oh, she's so evil. She's so bad. She's so this. She said that, and I was like, no, she's just, she's a woman who loves someone so much that she can't handle the fact that he rejected her. <laughs> you know, so I, I never played her as being evil. I played her as being the jilted ex-wife who could never get over that person. And, it, and her whole motivation was, if I can't have you, then no one can. But had I focused on playing her evil, it would have been a cliched kind of, you know, twirling of the mustache evil kind of performance. Instead, it was all the vulnerability that goes with being, being rejected. And she, you know, Angel rejected Darla. And 
that's what fueled her. That was like what her whole motivation was just to get him back. Um, so that's what I mean by you can't place judgment on a character. You can't say, oh, this is a good character. This is a bad character. This is, you know, because even when you play heroes, you want to have the heroes have flaws. So it's finding the Achilles heel of the hero. You know, what's their kryptonite? What makes them, you know, you know, what makes them weak? What what stresses them out at night? What keeps them awake? You know, what's their vice? Every, everybody has a vice. What's their vice? Because um, otherwise they're just a boring, perfect hero, and who wants to see that? <laughs> of course. Now, you talked about envisaging uh, how, how you see the, you know, the, the scene or the script to play out. Have you ever considered directing? Because clearly you've got a, a fantastic handle on characters and on vision. Yeah, you know, I directed a play in high school and I had a really bad experience because <laughs> um, I couldn't get my actors to learn their lines. However, that was a long time ago. Um, I think now it is definitely something I'm interested in. Um, it's something that uh, I could see. I could see myself doing now more than ever, uh, because I, I just think I, I've, I understand the process more now more than ever. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know enough about cameras and stuff. But the, you know, it's it's really got to surround yourself with amazing with an amazing crew to help you out there. But. Yes, I mean, I would love to produce. Producing is definitely something I see myself doing. And you have also, in the early 2000s, done a couple of video game voiceovers. How strenuous did you find recording those? Um, not, not, I mean, well, Halo 2 was pretty strenuous because they liked it when my voice got tired. So I would spend the first two hours recording all the scripts and then my voice would start to get really tired and get really raspy. And then they would be like, okay, let's go back and record, record everything again. Cause now we like, we like that rasp in your voice. Um, and then I realized if I just, as I drove there, cause I did, I think I did three recording sessions for that game. Um, the second time I went, I realized that if I just sang, sang at the top, if I sat in the car and sang at the top of my lungs, the whole way there that my voice would be tired and then I, it would be a shorter session because <laughs> I would walk in with the rest of my voice. I, I'm not a trained voiceover actor. Um, there are people who are extremely talented at voiceover acting. Um, they're voiceover artists. Uh, I just happen to get lucky and do a couple games and I, I, I wouldn't say I have an artistry to it, but uh it was a lot of fun. I'd love to do it again. And you have worked on a lot of shows with huge fan bases, obviously you know, Buffy and Angel, but also Dexter and Desperate Housewives. Which set of fans do you find the most passionate? Oh, you know, I always say the Buffy and Angel fans, they grew up and became Dexter fans. So it's kind of the same fan base. <laughs> um, uh, and, yeah, I would say they're the most passionate the ones that followed me from Buffy and Angel and Dexter. And uh, all of your Australian fans are going to have a chance to meet you at Supernova Adelaide and Brisbane uh, over the next couple of weeks. What do you find enjoyable about doing convention appearances? I love the global community that's created by the shows that I've been on. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, people around the world connect to it and 
discover, you know, discover it. And then there's a whole community that's created around the show. Um, I love that aspect of it. I love being able to say thank you. You know, I love being able to meet fans and say thank you so much for your support over all these years and for watching everything I've done. Um, so that's very exciting for me. And you have got a couple of uh, new projects fans can look forward to seeing in 2019. What can you tell us about the new YouTube show yeah. on Becoming a God in Central Florida? Yeah, um, we're, we've just started shooting it. Um, it's with Kirsten Dunst, and it takes, it takes place in the 90s in Central Florida, and it's set around an Amway Pyramid scheme. And uh, it's a dark comedy, so I get to be funny. Finally, again, um, and it, it's it's fun. It's been very exciting to to work on it and to work with Kirsten. Um, and then I also have a, a TV movie for Lifetime that'll be out called Heaven, based on the VC Andrews books, and that's very exciting for me because I loved VC Andrews when I was a, when I was a teenager, and um, to be a part of of her legacy is exciting for me. It certainly sounds like it. Now, we do unfortunately have to let you go, but uh, finally, what's one thing you'd like to achieve next in your career? Uh, one thing I'd like to achieve next. You know, uh, producing and directing. I mean, definitely producing, for sure. I'd like to, uh, you know, find, you know, help develop a script, move it forward, get it produced, um, and sell it, whether I'm in it or not. That's up in that would be up in the air. But um, but to learn that that aspect of of the business of the work that it takes to get something made and get created. That that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, Julie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time, and we cannot wait to see you at Supernova Brisbane and Adelaide in early November. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm very excited. Now, Julie is joining me and a ton of other people at Supernova Adelaide and Brisbane. Uh, and that is going to be very soon. That's the first two weekends of November. So weekend one is uh, here in my home city of Adelaide. And then the following weekend is in Brisbane. And she's there with uh, some of our other guests, including Gareth Abbott Lloyd, who's going to be on uh, next week's show. But now, here is my chat with Brad Sherwood, who has been starring in Whose Line Is Anyway for many, many years. And he's coming out to Australia and uh, New Zealand as part of the Who's Live Tour, along with uh, Colin Mockery and Greg Proops. And um, I've put the link in the show notes because they're going to be some great shows. I love Who's Live anyway. So here's my chat with Brad. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Brad, and thanks so much for joining me today. It is my pleasure. Now, what inspired you to pursue a career in performance? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I wanted to be an actor. I don't really know why, but right around the age of eight, I started doing, uh, theater and never stopped and then went to school to be an actor when I went to college and from there went off to LA and never looked back. Just, I didn't even know what I was going to do. And now I'm in a career that didn't even exist when I was a kid. And when did you know that improv was something you wanted to focus on more in your career? 
uh, I just liked doing it. I took a workshop, and it was kind of the thing for me. And I, I was sort of quickly very good at it, and it felt like it was sort of an extension of the way my brain worked 24 hours a day. So uh, I just got into a bunch of different groups. I did a, a group called Theater Sports. There may be some uh, Australian branches of Theater Sports. And uh, then I did Second City out here in the United States and then got on Who's Line. And as you said, there wasn't, this wasn't really a career path going back that long. Why do you think improv is now more mainstream? It's solely because of Who's Line. Uh, once uh, Who's Line came to ABC in the United States with Drew Carey, uh, you, you know, North America and the United States really sort of realized uh, that it even existed. Before that, it was mostly people that might have seen it in comedy clubs or small theaters that even knew that improv existed. And since Who's Line came out, then everyone became aware of it and they started teaching improv in curriculums in drama in you know high schools and even uh, elementary or junior high and college and people got into improv groups in college and 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 now it's sort of universally known as a different comedy form of besides stand up and sketch and what is it about whose line you think that makes it as popular as it is globally uh, I just think I think everybody can sort of relate to the silliness of what the show is. Everything that we do on the show is is pretty kind of goofy and and silly. It's a lot of grown men and women uh, just being put in ridiculous situations and trying to use their wits to sort of make their way through them and get out of them. And I think audiences like that. They like to sort of see our brains uh, being challenged and on the hot seat to come up with something funny. And it's not, it's not super negative comedy. A lot of sitcoms tend to be sort of very snarky or sarcastic and talking about how things are stupid. And it's sort of universal whose line is because you can understand whose line, whether you're from India or Australia or England or the United States or any other English speaking uh, person because we're not making giant references about, you know, stuff that's so specifically cultural to the United States or, you know, uh, so it translates and, and people don't feel alienated. If, if, if you had just moved to the United States uh, in the 80s and started watching Friends, you, you might not get a lot of the references. But whose line is just so silly, it, you, you kind of understand it from the get-go. Certainly. Now, what is your favorite and least favorite game on Whose Line? Uh, my least favorite game, uh, not surprisingly, would have to be Hoedown. It's just, I like doing a lot of the musical stuff, but Hoedown just feels like uh, this thing that we've had to do every single episode since the beginning of time, and it never changes, and it just, <laughs> it's just brutal. And usually I'm in sort of one of the last spots, so I watch as all the good rhymes are taken by the guys ahead of me, you know, any topic, there might be like three or four super good rhymes. And you got three guys ahead of you, each doing two good rhymes. That's six right off the bat. So I'm always having to plumb the depths of, you know, some weird avant-garde reference about whatever it is to even come up with something that hasn't been already taken. So, yeah. That, that, that's my least favorite game. But I, I like all the other musical games. I like when we get to sing songs of the whatever uh, or, 
Um, I, I also like uh, sound effects and moving bodies and, and, you know, just I like stuff that where I sort of can get the other guys into trouble, too. Hmm. And obviously the show is completely improvised, but do you get any time to work with the other improvisers, especially when you were starting out, or even some of the guest stars that come and play with you guys? No, the, the people that are guest stars on the show, we don't even get to meet them before the show. We say hello to them as they come out on stage for their first thing. We say hello, we shake their hand, and uh, that's it. They, yeah, they're, they're not going to have us interact with them. They only tell us like uh, a couple, an hour or two before the show uh, that who the guest star might be, just so that we at least have a, a point of reference. And we're not, you know, they might go, okay, he's on a CW show called Arrow, and he plays this character, you know, because we we can't just know everything about everyone on the planet. You know, if it's a super super famous person, obviously we would know who that person is, but. Uh, uh, yeah, they just don't want us to be totally in a vacuum and meeting someone for the first time who we don't know what they do. Of course. But yes, we, uh, as far as the other improvisers, we've all worked with each other for years. But yeah, we don't, we don't sit down before the show and, you know, have a pep talk or even discuss what's going to happen because we're all just jumping into the game as it goes and we have no idea what the suggestions are. So there's no pre-planning of any situation. Naturally. And has there ever been a moment either on, on the TV show or at one of your live shows where, where something just didn't work, where you, where you kind of died on stage and you had to get yourself out of that situation? Oh, that happens several times during every single scene that you ever do. You know, every every moment on stage is sort of you launching uh, an intellectual uh, paper airplane, and it's either going to fly and take the wind and go up to the stars, or it's going to hit the ground, and you have to pick it up and adjust the wings and try it again. Yeah, yeah, it's trial and error through every single moment of a show. And it's like after you get a, a laugh with something you say, like I'm about to say something, I'm hoping, oh, I hope this tickles everybody's funny bone, I say it, if it gets a laugh, great after the laugh is done it's like a complete reset now what you you have to start from zero because of nothing planned so you can't rest on your laurels you are in constant it's almost like a shark you have to keep swimming and rushing water over your gills and that's the scene the scene has to continue to move and uh be fed and hopefully your instincts can sort of guide you in the right direction but yes it's trial and error success and failure at all times on stage, every single thing you can you say on stage in an improv scene could be hugely successful, or might fall as a dud. And if it falls as a dud, generally you're on stage with a couple other people that will crucify you for that, and then that will get the laugh. So, and that's really all we care about. Even if the laugh is at your expense from a failure or from something you intended to be funny, it doesn't matter to us. We just want them to laugh. And has there ever been a moment? where you've been really, really proud of something that, that has sprung to mind, whether it was an idea or a line or a joke, just something that you really were happy with. Oh, yes, puns. I love when a, like a perfect pun comes along because everybody sort of, most people sort of pretend to hate puns, but when they're really good, they really like them, but they sort of are embarrassed to, to truly applaud them and they kind of give a groan. But when it's like something that sort of seems sublime, these two completely unrelated things are happening in the scene and then you can sort of encapsulate and synthesize them together with something that's a total groaner of a pun. I, I just take a lot of joy in that. The, 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 the 10-year-old boy inside of me just loves to do that. 
Now, uh, whose line is returning to the CW next year? Is it safe to say you'll be back for more episodes? Uh, yes, yes. I'm uh, pretty sure. Uh, I seem to be in good standing with all the producers, unless there's something I'm not aware of. But yeah, we're, we're actually going to be performing all together uh, in London for uh, sort of like a Who's Live uh, Christmas show. At uh, We're going to do three shows at Royal Albert Hall in London. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, I'll be doing at least one or two shows for the next season. Well, that is certainly something to look forward to. But uh, audiences in Australia and New Zealand and, of course, the U.S. can look forward to seeing you and Colin Mockery live. Now, what can audiences expect when it's just you and Colin on stage? Uh, It's just a lot less of Greg uh, in our two-man show. Uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's completely improvised. We bring audience members up on stage. Our live show is actually more audience interactive than the TV show. So we're constantly bringing people up on stage, using their information. Uh, we kind of hand the keys of the car to them and tell them to drive us where they want to go, which makes it so much fun for them because it feels like the whole show is custom made for them. And it really proves to them that the show and improv is being made up when they are so immersed and responsible for the content of where we're taking the entire show. And what do you think is the most common misperception about improv? Uh, I think that, well, when you're doing improv correctly, you should be totally just flying by the seat of your pants, listening to only what's happening on stage, trying not to get caught up in your own head and come up with funny things that aren't related to literally what is being said back and forth between you and your partners on stage. So I think one misconception is that we that improvisers have a bunch of sort of default uh, little plot points that they kind of steer something into so they can get to some like a classic comedy bit like the Abbott and Costello who's on first routine like that we're sort of trying to take whatever the audience gives us and send it off in a direction where we can go down the well-worn groove of some skit that we already have done a bunch of times and because the audiences are always trying to figure out they couldn't possibly be that clever so they must have a trick to where they pretend like they're making it up and then they kind of do a sketch that is sort of half prepared. You know, it, it, it's in a certain sense, it's kind of an insult to our skill set, but it's also, I guess, a uh, compliment. Like, oh, that was so funny, I can't believe anyone's brain could possibly do that. But, but you know, they're kind of calling us liars. And um, you have, I think you have performed in Australia before. Are Australian audiences notably yes. different from the US or the UK? I don't think so. I, I think there's a certain commonality to what people find funny. And I think that the people that come to see improv uh, have great senses of humor and want to see the creative aspect of what an improv show is. Uh, they're, they're not looking for super snarky, cynical comedy that a lot of stand-ups do. Uh, at least I know in the States, a lot of stand-ups tend to be kind of negative, and their whole act is about how stupid this is and why dumb people do that and why, you know. And so they sort of, the whole evening becomes about laughing and judging and looking down on aspects of people's behavior and this and that, whereas we don't do that. We are just being and doing and and creating silly situations. So it's a totally different experience. It's, it's seeing sort of 
sketches and uh, scenarios being played out that can go completely to the sublime and the ridiculous all in one, as opposed to just the musings of one guy's perspective on why the world is stupid. So it's more of a, a creative, fun journey for everyone. And I think that audiences in general, whether they're British, uh, Australian, or American, the ones that seek out improv are excited to go on that journey and not just sort of be told how stupid everything is by, you know, a smart-ass comic. Mm. You're certainly right. Improv is, is fantastic, and we can't wait to have you out here in Australia. Now, just before we let you go, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in improv? Uh, you've got to do it over and over and over again. We get with a group of people, find a place where you can uh, torture audiences until you get good, you know, whether it's playing in coffee houses or, a, you know, late night on a Sunday at a comedy club where they'll give you a little spot to play for 20 minutes. Just you got to do it. It's, it's kind of like a sport. You need so the muscle memory of your brain getting comfortable performing and working under those conditions. That's it. It's It's... There are very few performing things where you get good at it by doing it, but never doing it the same way twice. You know, it, that goes counter to anyone who learns how to play sports or play an instrument. You know, you get good by the repetition of playing scales until you can do them with your eyes closed and not even think about it. But imagine to get good at a guitar, you had to never play the same notes in the same order ever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, just, it's counterintuitive, which is why a lot of people don't think that... that Improv is is somehow not cheating somehow. Like you couldn't possibly just have original thoughts every single time and make a funny comedy show. Well, Brad, it has been wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time, and we cannot wait to see you out here in Australia and over in New Zealand as well uh, later on in the year. It was my pleasure. And if you if you're coming to the show, then uh, you know come by and say hi to us after the show backstage. That was the lovely Brad Sherwood, and as I said. Uh, links for uh, for tickets to their shows are in the uh, the show notes for the podcast, so do check that out. Now, that is all for today's show. As always, thanks to our incredible supporters, Palace Nova Cinemas and Mad Zombie Collectibles, as well as uh, ZQ Racing. All their details are in either the show notes or at the uh, supporters section of the website. Don't forget to uh, go and listen to The Phoenix Files, starring BAFTA nominee Paul McGann, the, uh, the soundtrack album composed by the incredible Sean Braithwaite. It's 13 full tracks. Um, they sound absolutely amazing. Listening to those and uh, helping with the uh, producing of that album has been one of the joys of working on The Phoenix Files. That's out on Halloween. Uh, you can go on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, or phoenixfilesaudio.com, and you can uh, just look up the Phoenix Files audio dramas, and you've got the uh, the music of the series right there. And as always, you can listen to the first two installments, uh, The Man in the Shadows and Blood in the Ashes. Just uh, same thing, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, or the website. Links in the show notes, and Life in the Flames will be out. The final installment of The Phoenix Files is out uh, November 30th, so look out for that very, very soon. Um, and as I said, Julie Benz will be at Supernova, as will I, uh, and some of our previous guests as well, like Aaron Zek. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic couple of weekends, so head on out there. I'm very excited about it. Um, you know, If you don't see me on stage, you'll see one of the other incredible MCs. It's going to be a really, really wonderful couple of weekends. Incredible guests, and we'll be back with uh, two more interviews in the next uh, next podcast. So first week of November, going to get that out just before Supernova, with uh, Gareth David Lloyd from uh, from Torchwood, and uh, also Ryan Potter from uh, the new Titans show. So we've got some, some exciting interviews coming up. But uh, as always, follow me on Twitter 
um, at BenjaminMM underscore BenjaminMamaKay over on Instagram and uh, BenjaminMamaKay on Facebook. Look for the uh, verified check mark. Well, it's been wonderful having you all with us today. See you next time. <laughs>